Koiti Arapuru Sounds Inga reo, inga mana, rauranga tirema, tēnā koutou katoa. This is the Magpie House Made for Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Toiti Arapuru. Ko Kirsten Johnstone, ahau. Should we go into the shed? It's a, it's a little bit shed. <laughs> bit of a strange place to be, but it's, it's, all right. um, it's out of the wind and it's, and it's cold. We're back at 22 Ascot Terrace, where Douglas Lilburn lived for over 40 years. This rundown old garden shed I'm standing in with conservation architect Chris Cochran is exactly what it sounds like. Drafty, dusty, and with some reminders of Lilburn's life there. Like this wooden crate of old, mostly unopened, beer. That crate of beer came out from underneath the house. Mm. Well, it has to be either Richard Collins or Douglas Lilburn, <laughs> and we don't know which, and uh, uh, quite possibly Lilburn. He did. He was quite fond of his um, wine uh, towards the end. Whether he drank beer much, I don't know, but um, that goes down in history now as Lilburn's last dozen beer. Um, we've opened a bottle of it, and it was <laughs> was not drinkable, I can tell you. This this was a favourite building of, of Lilburn's. He loved this old shed, the, the gardening shed, and you can tell it's just been potted around in for years and years with old gardening tools and bits and pieces hanging from the rafters and the old tin of creosote and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an appropriate place now for a, a dozen of uh, Lilburn's beer. But Lilburn wasn't the only fascinating person to live in the Magpie House. In this episode, a family and their friends start an innocent-sounding club. Essentially, it was a a vegetable co-op, which on Fridays would distribute cheap veggies amongst their social group. Which possibly isn't quite as innocent as it seems. Keith and Nigel are saying things like, fuck the Pope and the bloody Americans, and Dick Collins is ranting about American dollars. And come to be spied on by the special branch of the New Zealand police. They were blindsided and unable to refute what was being said about them. It was all secret. And this is the mystery of the mole. And who that might be. Do you want to hear about the spies? This is episode two, The Vegetable Club. And it's particularly bizarre if you knew knew our father, who wasn't the sort of person who was up to organising a sort of political kind of anything. This is Nikki Saker. She looks after writer Catherine Mansfield's historic house down the road from Ascot Street. Her older brother John is here too. He wasn't a political animal. Yeah, he wasn't a political animal. John was New Zealand's first professional basketball player in the 1970s. Nowadays he writes. He published a book called How to Drink a Glass of Wine. Their father was a doctor named Dorian Saker. He was part of a group of left-leaning friends who'd met at Wellington College. Most of them had fought in World War II, and by the 1950s they were all young professionals with growing families. And they all lived in the neighbourhood. These old school friends were all living, well, easily within walking distance of each other in Thorndon. My parents lived in Goring Street, you know, which is off George Street. The Taylors lived in Aiken Street, Street, you know, which is now where the National Library was. The Matthews lived in May Street. And then there was the Collins family in Ascot Terrace. 
Richard Collins, or Dick as everyone called him, had been ducks when they graduated high school, so no big surprises, he was now a successful senior diplomat. It was the Collins family that built the Magpie House in that little Thorndon Lane in 1951, no mean feat considering the building material shortages at the time. John Saker remembers going there. It's a little house with a flat roof, I suppose modern for its era, um, vaguely plushkaresque, but that, that might be giving it a bit too much uh, credit. Built on that east-facing ledge, uh, an Ascot Terrace with a bank behind it and uh, sort of a, a bank in front of it. Yeah, I remember as a kid, you know, Richard Collins was mad on cricket. Uh, my brother and I quite liked to play, but there was nowhere to play at that place. You know, it was <laughs> there was no kind of flat land at all around it. And that was the Collins house. And all these families were close. The women were all very highly educated too and having children at the same time. At one point, three of them were in the Wellington maternity ward together. They were sort of like the 60s before the 60s. They kind of lived almost, not communally in terms of housing, but they shared so much of, you know, the women shared childcare and they all dinners and, you know, it's sort of a bit trite to say ahead of their time, but they certainly anticipated in their attitudes and views a lot of the changes that came in the late 60s. They were high-achieving young men, you know, academically, and great mates, and which was really what the Vegetable Club was all about. The Vegetable Club. Mostly just a chance to get the friends together for a catch-up, but with some vegetables involved. The glue, the excuse, was not vegetables. It was friendship, really, to fit for getting together. And... Um, they got together on Friday nights, divvied up a few cauliflowers and cabbages and uh, opened a few half cheese and, and... Chewed the fat. Our memory of them and, and the parties we were at when we were young is just non-stop conversation, you know, clever repartee, uh, guys who loved talking and, and their wives as well and, and enjoyed each other's company. This was in the days of the six o'clock swill, when pubs closed at six. And of course, you had to find another venue to, to have a beer, so um, this was another venue. The venue for the Vegetable Club between about 1951 and the end of 1953 was the McCarthy Trust Building on Lambton Quay at the offices of two of the Wellington College friends, Nigel Taylor and Keith Matthews, who'd become lawyers. They were usually joined by Dick Collins, owner of the Magpie House, and Doug Lake, both of whom worked for the Department of External Affairs. And there'd be others too, the Catholic haberdasher and the land agent who shared the floor, young lawyer Shirley Smith, folk musician Jim Delahunty, and Communist Party members including Conrad Bollinger, Nick Bollinger's dad. Essentially it was a, a vegetable co-op, which on Fridays would distribute cheap veggies amongst their social group, which in itself was quite a progressive thing for, for the time and had a kind of socialist base to it as well, you know, the idea of sort of redistribution and, and sharing and saving people money and all this sort of thing. During the week, people sent their list of what they wanted. This is Jackie Matthews. She's 94 now with a super sharp memory. 
She'd married the lawyer Keith Matthews and had been working in France. Keith came back to New Zealand just as the waterfront dispute was coming to an end and Jackie came back shortly after. Roy Coots, who was the accountant, he used to go to the markets on a Wednesday or Thursday morning and if you put in your list the usually the chaps that wasn't specified that it should be the men but it nearly always was used to go in on a Friday night after work and pick up the vegetables and have a glass of beer. The women were not very impressed with about the quality of the vegetables, <laughs> but at least we didn't have to carry them home. But the club wasn't just a chance to catch up with mates and swap a few subpar vegetables. Its origins were sort of in supporting the strikers. Nikki's talking about the waterfront strikers. If you know about this already, don't worry, we won't spend too much time explaining, but briefly, for people who don't know... 1951, waterfront strike? Bang, it's all on. This is historian Aaron Fox, who's done a lot of research into diplomatic, military and Cold War history. By 1951, New Zealand's economy was booming, but the cost of living was going up too. The waterfront workers were asking for a steep pay rise, 15%, and they wanted to be paid for all the overtime too. 151-day confrontation here in Wellington on the wharves. It's essentially the the left-wing unions against the right-wing government. At its peak, there were 22,000 wharfies off work. This is the first tranche, if you will, of our Cold War experience where it's the public setting. So all these battles happen in public. The government does not propose to stand idly by and allow communists and other troublemakers to victimise decent workers who we know are anxious to return to employment as soon as possible. That was a statement on the waterfront dispute issued today by the Minister of Labour, Mr Sullivan. 151 days are lockout. The kids and mum get a knockout. Union fund pay then run out. When will men have liberty? Stand together in unity. Under the Police Offences Act of 1951, it was illegal to give the wharfies or their families money or food. And food was scarce anyway. It wasn't being unloaded from the docks. And so the Vegetable Club kicked off. Because Nigel was a lawyer for striking waterfront workers... And I think the Vegetable Club started, they delivered vegetables to households who were, you know, there was no income. They were, they were doing it hard. Both of them supported the wharfy families up the road who had no food for their children, even though it was illegal to do so. This is Sarah Lake talking about her parents, Doug and Ruth Lake, Dick Collins's friends and fellow Vegetable Club members. No way mum would have stood by if children were going hungry and she could do something about it. That's the kind of people they were. These people, all upstanding professionals or students, all dreaming of better futures after the war and buying cheap veggies, were being spied on. In fact, some of them, by the late 40s, already had fairly thick police files. It's hard to comprehend the paranoia of the time against communism and the Soviets. Hadn't they been our allies in World War II? Here's Aaron Fox with a condensed Cold War History 101. 
During the Second World War, there was that brief period where the Soviet Union was allied with the West, mainly because Germany had attacked the Soviet Union. And that's where the biggest conflict was occurring in the Second World War, titanic struggle between two diametrically opposed ideologies. And finally, at the end, when the Soviet Union wins, with Allied help, everybody's happy. To the point where they're not, because they know as soon as the war's finished, there's a new world order which is going to have to be sorted out. And they all know that the Soviet Union wants its view of the world, the Americans want democracy everywhere, and Britain and the Commonwealth want to try and retain their colonies, but they can't. So it's sort of up for grabs after World War II. And you have, from 1947 onwards, the world dividing into those two ideological camps. The Iron Curtain comes down, and major world leaders, Stalin in Russia, Truman in the US, and Churchill in Britain, speak out against each other's regimes. Then you throw China into the mix from 1949, and they become communist. So a third of the world's population is now controlled by an organisation that can trace its origins back to the Soviet or Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. It's big stuff. Little people don't figure in that. These are big geopolitical considerations. Also, America and Britain are well aware that the Soviets have the nuclear bomb, and that changes everything. That capability for mutually assured destruction is developing around the world. Mad. It's, it's all happening. It's all happening right then and there. So there's a tremendous public paranoia developing. So from the United States, this anti-communist crusade reflected in the most peculiar ways. If you think to the sci-fi films of the 50s, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that is a classic Cold War film where a community thinks it's quite safe and then realises that the people in the community are no longer the people they thought they were. They've been taken over by somebody else. So that's a tremendous analogy for communism. They have a perfect right to have their own form of government. They have a perfect right to have a dictatorship if they want it. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with you. But they have no right to have their tools in this country trying to fasten that form of government upon us. No right to have that. And that's what I'm here tonight for. My job is to try to keep this country clean of rat bags like them and you. That's what I'm Communist Party had been outlawed in the 20s and the 30s. Uh, police had kept an eye on them then. But on the same time, the communists could stand for local government elections, they could stand for national elections. They weren't a popular party, they had a public face. And so quite a lot of this debate about East and West and what New Zealand's future was like it happened in the public view. Conrad Bollinger had joined the Communist Party as a student in the late 1940s, so his SAS file starts when he was just a teenager. He was at university, and in those days, that's where you went if you were interested in ideas, you know, in, in, in debating the way forward for society. I mean, he, he was an idealist, as were a lot of his friends and contemporaries. So... Uh, you know, they, they also were interested in tramping and things. They'd go up into the Akataroas or Orongorongos and take a bottle of whiskey and sit there all weekend, you know, debating the, the merits of Marxism and Trotskyism and all the rest of it, I think. 
Oh, as you do on a good tramp, you solve the problems of the world. Exactly. That's what they were <laughs> up to. Uh, but, of course, this activity was viewed with suspicion by, you know, certain authorities. I mean, there was this Cold War going on and New Zealand was playing its part. And there were sometimes hilarious and sometimes sort of slightly tragic consequences of all of that. Already in 48, we had legislation saying that we didn't want any communists in the public service. Jackie Matthews. Especially in areas that might be considered areas of security. But in 49, when the National Party, they, they of course adopted even more frantically the idea that a, a purge or a vetting of all public servants should be undertaken. You should know what their relationships were, what their associations were, what their family background was, and all those things. And so there's that um, element of surveillance and subversion. So there's a possibility that Moscow's directing the Communist Party people to cause problems behind the scenes in New Zealand. The police keep an eye on them. They tap phones, they have agents who are attending meetings, they keep dossiers on people. They've been doing it for quite some time. You didn't even have to join the Communist Party to be the subject of a special branch file. Dick Collins had joined the Socialist Club in university in the late 40s. Jackie Matthews had worked for the French Press Service in Wellington in 1946 and 47 and was writing for the lefty journal Here and Now under a pseudonym after returning from France in early 52. Keith Matthews and Nigel Taylor had special branch police files that dated back to student protests against colonialism. Doug and Ruth Lake had been posted in diplomatic positions in Moscow. That's where they met and fell in love. And back in New Zealand, they remained members of the Society for Closer Relations with the USSR. Doug had already been warned to keep his wife in line after she wrote a pamphlet setting out her analysis of the situation in Russia. Their daughter Sarah says it was like a red rag to a bull for external affairs where Doug worked. Dad talks about being asked to, um, you know, that this could adversely affect his career. And he said, I've got too much respect for my wife's intelligence to tell her what to do. For them, being in Russia was an eye-opener. Dad talks about the being in, in Moscow and going to the opera and meeting up with a waiter who could quote poetry to him or talk about the opera. You know, they were really impressed at the level of wider understanding that everyday Russians had. And they were... You know, really appreciated what the, the effort that the Russians had put into the war as our allies. And you don't turn your back on, our, on your allies unless there's a particularly good reasons. And they couldn't see what the reasons were, except that people were perhaps a bit against them. And so for them, it wasn't an option to turn their backs on them. All of them are people who are questioning the policies of our own state. This is Jackie Matthews again. This loosely 
left-wing Fabian group who are asking questions. Dissent is the word. They are non-conformists. Dissent is an awkward place to be. Do you want to hear about the spies? The actual distribution of vegetables is certainly not the type of business which one would expect to find organised from the offices of a reputable legal firm. The question is posed as to whether the vegetable club may be a cover for other activities, although there is no positive evidence to show that this is the case. Observation has shown that the distribution of the vegetables is an excuse for a social evening where a fair amount of liquor is consumed, resulting in members leaving the premises in various stages of intoxication. Reading the file, it's like somebody smearing a really rather lovely occasion with with a, a, a greasy uncouth kind of fingerprint. Nikki Saker. You know, it's so judgmental about the fact they were drinking beer, for God's sake. You know, like, it's not that big a deal. The special branch reports are fairly banal to read, but what is clear is that during 1953, attendance at the Vegetable Club was recorded. Conversations being had there were recounted, members' phones were being bugged, and their houses were being watched particularly the most crucial one was a meeting on April the 2nd, 1953, in which Keith and Nigel are saying things like, um, uh, fuck the Pope and the bloody Americans, and Dick Collins is ranting. In the course of a conversation concerning the proposed exchange of prisoners of war in Korea, Collins stated that there could be immediate peace in Korea, but the bloody American bastards had so many rotten dollars tied up in armaments that they would see to it that there was no peace there. He said, Those bastards are so involved in it financially that they would see to it that the communists don't get peace. The thing was that nothing they were doing was, in fact, illegal. This is Nick Bollinger. And it was intellectual. It was actually patriotic. You know, they they were people who were interested in a more equitable society and they thought we should be interested in all sorts of ways forward. And again, there's the, the mystery of the mole and who that might be. Um, who was... Who was the snitch? Who was the snitch? There was a snitch. Who was that? And again, it's that difficult thing where if you don't know, everybody's under the, under the cloud, aren't they, really? Anybody in the group is... That's the trouble. This is Wellington, a tiny village of a city. So, of course, we do know who the spy was. Or at least, we can make a pretty well-informed assumption. He later wrote a book about it. We also tested this assumption with the NZSIS and received a we-can-neither-confirm-nor-deny response. He was actually staying at Comrade's house. I think I can actually remember the time when he came in. It was a face I didn't know. He came in with Conrad that time. 
Yep, it was Nick Bollinger's dad, Con, who brought the spy to the vegetable club. In 1953, Conrad's mother went overseas for a year. Con, who would have been in his early 20s, filled the house, was still living at home, and he filled the house with his chums, really. All of them really were sort of, you know, people he'd met through political circles at university, socialist club. One of those flatmates was a man named George Fraser. But it transpired sometime later, well, he wrote a, a, a tell-all memoir which, in which he confessed all this, that he was actually in the employment of the special branch. And he was supposed to be, you know, gathering the dirt on these communists and socialists and dissidents. I remember Conrad telling me once, we had a spy living with us when I was a student. I knew he was a spy when I came home one day and found that he'd taken the telephone apart and he didn't seem to know how to put it back together. (laughs) Now, there's no mention of this in George Fraser's memoir, but one thing George Fraser does say in his memoir was that Conrad said to him one night, said, I could hear you talking in your sleep last night through the wall. And this made Fraser really paranoid. Uh, <laughs> and I think that was Con's way of saying, we know what you're up to here. And that's not all. This is bizarre. Quite coincidentally, there's another intersection between the Bollingers and Lilburn and the security service, which is that George Fraser, the spy who was living at my father's house was also a sort of aspiring jazz musician. It was actually hearing classical music on the radio that had made George Fraser apply to the New Zealand Broadcasting Service for a job. He ended up in the dance department. Downstairs in the NZBC building, the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra rehearsed and the musicians would come up for a little razzmatazz during their lunch hours. Fraser ended up orchestrating some crooner jazz numbers for a group of the players. It was a run-in with a drunk Scotsman on a train who was on a tirade about Korea, capitalism and the government towing the American line that made young George Fraser offer his services to the special branch of the police. In 1951, he was sent to Greymouth to join the Communist Party, where he tried to memorise Marxist phrases, biked around the town looking plebeian, and attempted not to blow his cover by talking about jazz. He also talks in this book about my father and his socialist mates. They were all, of course, into folk songs, you know, because that's the music of the people, songs about trade unionists and workers. And and every now and then, poor old George Fraser tries to interest them in, in joining in a chorus of a Fats Waller song or something, and they're just not interested in this at all. They think it's decadent and bourgeois, <laughs> and they're not going to have a bar of it. I've travelled along with a laugh and a song in the land where they call you Maine. Around the horn and the home again, for that is the sailor's By 1952, George was back in Wellington, where Special Branch had enrolled him in university, doing papers in psychology and music. 
one of his lecturers was Douglas Lilburn. And there's something in his memoir which he writes about it. Uh, yeah, the music class, yeah, Professor Freddie Page, with assistance from composer Douglas Lilburn. Um, teachings were from Beethoven through to Vaughan Williams' classical styles, but well regimented against such things as added sixths or ninths. I believed I could help the university to achieve more relaxed rules on composition and gain permission to hold classes on certain nights in the lecture room. You know, he got some jazz musicians up from, from downtown. At the height of one furious session of the newly formed jazz club, the door suddenly opened to reveal a red-faced and fuming Freddie Page. Get out the lot of you. This desecration will no longer be tolerated. <laughs> University is where George Fraser met the charismatic Conrad Bollinger. During 1953, George released a single on Tanza called Misty Moon, sung by John Hoskins. Misty moon, you will all the west be moon. That same year, he would tag along to those vegetable club meetings on Fridays. Fraser admitted in his 1995 memoir, Seeing Red, that with a belly full of beer, it was hard to follow the fast-paced conversations, let alone write it all down later in the evening. The use of the word club, I think, was ironic. Jackie Matthews. It was so different from lawyers in the Wellington Club because there was nowhere to sit, there was no minutes, there were no votes, there were no possibilities even of a reasonable discussion. It was somebody would be talking about racing and racing results. There was not a possibility of a policy or a intent. Jackie remembers getting the call to come to the Collins's house one night in mid-1954. We were rung up to say that there was trouble in external affairs and that both uh, Dick and Doug were being considered security risks. I think... Already they'd begun to wonder if there had been somebody in the vegetable club, a mole or a, uh, an informer there. But now it was mid-54, and I think it was a quite a dark grey winter evening, and going into their living room, it didn't look at all like a vegetable club, meeting, there was a lot of tension in the room. Dick Collins, the owner of the Magpie House, and Doug Lake, who'd spent time in Moscow, had been called in by their boss at External Affairs, Alistair McIntosh. He told them that the Prime Minister, Sidney Holland, had been given reports from the special branch of the police on their vegetable club meetings, and that they would be removed from their present jobs and demoted to positions where they wouldn't have access to sensitive information. For Sarah Lake's parents, it was a shock. They were blindsided and unable to refute what was being said about them. It was all secret. There was a tribunal set up to look at the accusations. 
But for Dick Collins and Doug Lake, they weren't allowed to know what they were accused of, who they were accused by, or able to defend themselves in any way. As Doug said when he investigated the whole matter, it was clear that even if you were cleared, you wouldn't get a visa, you wouldn't be sent overseas because you wouldn't be accepted. For people who had settled into careers as diplomats, who were previously seen by their management as rising leaders in the field, this news was devastating. I think it makes me feel, in a strange sort of way, quite protective of my father. Nikki Saker, talking with her brother John again. Posthumously. Just to be in that position and, you know, for all of them to go round to the Collins's house and just freak out, I think. Well, I mean, you can only imagine it was a freak out. On the record, it has them both as resigning, I think. Yeah, they were told they'd never get a posting again. Everybody in the vegetable club was thinking, what does this mean for me? I could have been surveilled. Doug and Dick, they were the victims. They were the, you know, the eviscerated bodies hung out. That was because they were diplomats and had, you know, were involved in policy and foreign policy and things like that. Whereas the rest of the vegetable club were very happy private sector practitioners of law, medicine, whatever. Many years later, in the mid-2000s, the files on the Vegetable Club held by the SIS were released to the families. Richard Gray Collins and Douglas William Lake show by their... This is their sin for which they lose their job. Show by their contemptuous references to the Catholic Church the government of the United States of America and the police force in New Zealand, that they are disloyal and have no respect for the present system of society. They're actually criticising capitalism, perhaps, and are therefore ill-fitted to represent New Zealand in the diplomatic field. This added to their continuing voluntary association with subversive elements in the community show that they are security risks while they remain in their present employment. Of course, it wasn't George Fraser making the judgment that Dick Collins and Doug Lake were a danger to the public service. I'm sure that this is the voice of Lahore himself. Jackie thinks that it was Ruel Lahore. Coincidentally, it was Lahore who was in charge of keeping a close watch on the Jewish refugees in episode one of the Magpie House. In 1949, he became head of security at the Prime Minister's Department, and he wasn't going to tolerate anyone with even vaguely communist sympathies in the public service under his watch. The contemptuous references by Collins to the government of the United States, which are completely in accord with the dictates of the Kremlin, show him in his true colours. Lahore never forgot either. In 1980, he alleged during a parliamentary committee that at least 15 Soviet agents had operated in several government departments, including the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Richard Collins left the public service and never looked back. He had a law degree and went on to a distinguished career in patent law. 
His friend Doug Lake didn't fare as well. He couldn't get a job. Sarah Lake. I remember there the being a period, a quite a, almost a grey period in our childhood where we were, um, where putting the next meal on the table was an issue. And um, you're getting the job at the Press Association was a big relief, I think. Doug's old boss, Alistair McIntosh, vouched for him, and he worked in the press gallery for a while. Later, in the early 60s, the family packed up and went to China. Well, the opportunity came up to teach, so they went to experience for themselves. Dad was already a, a pariah as far as work, you know, difficult to get work as a journalist. Um, why not go? Why not follow their interests? Um, see how the, the next major power in the world was going. What I grew up with was knowing that they didn't turn their back on their friends, that they had a view of the world that they were prepared to stick to in spite of what it would cost them. Dad said to me later on in life, all my experience of life is that in the end you have to rely on yourself. And if you step out of line, take an independent path or voice unconformist or unpopular views, you are liable to get clobbered. In the end you have to rely on yourself as you have to live with your conscience. The New Zealand Public Service lost two talented, bright, multilingual, liberal young men who understood better than most the multinational world we were heading for. And they weren't the only ones being ousted or kept out of the government. It was our version of the sort of McCarthy, you know, House on American activities sort of thing. Nick Bollinger. It, it's upsetting, I suppose, looking at my father's file and realising that his career was obstructed at different points when you can also see from the file that everything he did was entirely above board. In the end, Fraser... He means George Fraser, the jazz spy. I think he pretty much realised that people knew who he was or were going to find out, and he asked to be repatriated to America. And he got some sort of assurance from the SAS that this would all go, you know, okay, and there'd be people there to meet him and things. And I think he had a young family at this point. Anyway, he upped stakes and and went to America and never got any assistance there at all. Basically, he'd been dropped and became very disabused with the whole thing and came to realise somewhat belatedly that people like my father... They actually treated him quite decently and w- weren't involved in any kind of subterfuge. You know, they, they were just people who wanted to debate alternatives. George Fraser and his young family came back to New Zealand in the early 60s after two years of destitution in the US. He became a vocal protester of the 1977 SAS Amendment Bill, which expanded the SAS's rights to intercept private communications. Well, after Dick's funeral, when all his children, who they all live in Europe now and have since their early 20s, after Dick's funeral, because somehow or other Radio New Zealand did a story and interviewed Barbara Collins about the Vegetable Club, and Barbara saying it was... It was an outrage. We just were absolutely shattered by it. We reached out to the Collins children when we were researching this podcast, but they didn't want to speak on the record. 
The police special branch was closed down in 1956 and replaced by the NZSIS, the Security Intelligence Service. The head of the SIS at the time, Brigadier Gilbert, would say privately in later years that the Vegetable Club affair had been badly handled at all levels. In an interview with journalist Redma Yiska in 2007, Keith Matthews talked about living under a cloud of suspicion in a city as small as Wellington and how bizarre it was that there was a spy in their midst. He said, I think I saw the blighter at the orchestra last week. I think little people got caught up in a big machine and ground up in the process. Historian Aaron Fox. He's a big believer in public apologies and thinks the families of the Vegetable Club are owed one. We didn't do a good job, as is your very basic bureaucratic apology, I think. And then you can build up from there to the point where you know, we made a big mistake. We were in error. An acknowledgement that things could have been done better. That's probably a good start. And for the families, yes, I think it means something. It does. We reached out to the NZSIS, but they declined an interview. Understandable, considering it was the police, not SAS, that were involved. However, Director General of Security, Rebecca Kitteridge, did send us an email. She wrote, I do think it's important to note that these events took place around 70 years ago at a time when a very different set of geopolitical tensions influenced New Zealand's national security interests. The Cold War had not long commenced and the threat of Soviet intelligence operations targeting New Zealand and other Western governments was very real. These contextual factors are important to consider when reviewing historical events through a contemporary lens. It may not be for me in this instance to cast judgement on the operational efforts of a different era in time, but it is important the history is told as accurately as possible so the actions of the day can be judged on their own merits by all. You want to be able to trust authority, but it's a good argument for transparency, I think, the fact that these things can, could go on. There's always that question of who watches the watches, you know. Because where is the community surveillance on the politicians and the government officials who make these hard calls? Where are they brought to account? Because they wrap it all up in secrecy now. And if it's 70 years before we start to have a look at it in hindsight, none of us will be around to comment on it and none of us will be around to criticise it. You know, some of what's happening might actually be going too far. It's that element of trust on all sides, trusting that the government's doing the right thing, trusting that the people who don't trust the government aren't going to become too extreme, and trusting in the middle that New Zealanders are sensible enough to be able to sort of figure out with all of the debate or non-debate that's going on, the stuff we're told and the stuff that we're not told or won't find out for a year or two till the media get official Information Act releases. We just have to trust. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm um, not sure how much trust there is out there. The house at Ascot Terrace, the Magpie House, belonged to the Collins family until 1959. I never knew uh, Richard Collins, but I did talk to Barbara Collins um, way back in history, his, his wife. Conservation architect Chris Cochran. The understanding I had was that as their fourth child was due to be born, they decided the house was too small. 
and uh, three bedrooms and um, yeah, would be a small house for four children and two adults and they sold the house to Lilburn in 1959. But as I understand it, they loved the house, they made no changes to it and passed it over to Lilburn's care in more or less completely original form and Lilburn himself of course made very few changes to it as well. So it stayed as a very authentic building of that period. That's, I mean it's great importance of course is Lilburn. The SA has confirmed for us that Douglas Lilburn, a man of the left himself, also had a special branch file. It makes sense. Many of his friends were deemed possible security threats, including poet Dennis Glover and Lilburn's old schoolmate Ian Milner, who did indeed turn out to be a KGB agent. Lilburn's file was destroyed in 1974. In the next episode of The Magpie House, we'll catch up with Douglas Lilburn's story. I realised acutely how provincial and inadequate my musical knowledge and composition technique were in the face of the new musical context I found there. And he'll finally settle at 22 Ascot Terrace. Douglas, in fact, was a very good cook. He was a magical figure, really. Yeah, legendary this podcast was produced and presented for Sounds Centre for New Zealand Music, Toitiara Puru, by me, Kirsten Johnstone. Research and interviews were by Jane Tolleton. Our sound engineer is Phil Brownlee. Our script advisor is Melody Thomas of Popsock Media. We had production assistance from Roger Smith, Nina Lesperance, Jonathan Engel, Carlo Magatich, and Amy Somerville. Our executive producers are Diana Marsh, Eva Radich, and Leone Venter. Thanks to the following for supplying audio for this episode. The APO and RNZ Concert, Nga Taong as Sound and Vision, Tom McGrath for his piano solos, Margaret Nielsen and Ode Records, The Kugels, Martin Risley and Donald Morris from Atoll Records, Michael Houston, Justin DeHart, who record on Rattle Records, and the Lilburn Trust. For more about this podcast, and other Sounds podcasts and information about the music of Aotearoa New Zealand, go to the Sounds website, sounds.org.nz, that's S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Toi te Sounds.